Hello, this is Dr. Mike Barnett with the First Baptist Church of Ocean Springs, Mississippi. Thank you so very much for tuning in to our podcast, and I pray that today's message will be a blessing and an encouragement to you. We are engaging our people at First Baptist Church in an emphasis called Who's Your Mission? It is a challenge to personal soul winning and personal evangelism for the year 2023. We've asked our people to ask God for at least one soul to be burdened for that they might go after that soul and win them to the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the theme of these current messages. And I pray that they will encourage you to be a soul winner and go after one soul that needs to be saved now and to know Jesus now. I pray these messages will help you. And again, thank you for tuning in. And Jay, what a great um, series of songs about the grace of God and, and the cross. Because that's where we are today in 2 Samuel, the fourth chapter. So I invite you to turn with me there in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 4. If you want to use the Pew Bible, it's on page 485. If you have a Bible like mine, it's on page 294. And uh, if you don't, uh, you, you'll have to find on page number. But uh, 2 Samuel chapter 4. We're going to read this um, chapter. And if you're anything like me, you're going to ask the question, why is this here? Why would God tell us about this awful incident in Israel's history. The bigger question is, is what does it tell us about God? And what does it tell us about God in Christ reconciling you and me to himself? Where is grace in all of this? Where is God in all of this? And so let's read the text and uh, I'll tell you, but uh, I need to do something real quick before we read the text. I need to tell you how we come to chapter 4. You might recall that um, for years, David was on the run from King Saul. Saul knew that David was to be king. And Saul was in heart-depth rebellion against God and hated David sought to kill him. David's on the run for many years. Then Saul dies on the battlefield along with his son Jonathan. And upon Saul's death, a man by the name of Abner, Saul's captain, he's also Saul's cousin, he takes Saul's, one of Saul's other sons by the name of Ishbosheth. And he takes Ishbosheth and he flees to a city way out in the north, way up away from David, called Mahanaim. That's where he goes. And there 
he launches a civil war against the rightful king, the God-ordained king, David. David is crowned king by one tribe out of 12, one tribe, Judah. He reigns in the city of Hebron. Mahanaim is uh, 70 miles away. David, uh, Ishbosheth reigns there, manipulated by Abner. And the civil war begins in a very bloody and brutal, uh, strange uh, manner. 24 men are killed immediately, and then 300 are killed in battle. Abner kills Joab's brother, Aziel. It is a terrible time. And seven and a half years this battle went, this civil war went. The house of Saul grows weaker and weaker. The house of David grows stronger and stronger. And then upon a day, Ishbosheth accuses Saul of treachery, of treason. Saul does not deny it, but he gets angry and he says, and he says, I will take my influence and I will turn the 11 tribes of Israel to David and you will be all by yourself. And you remember that Abner goes to David and David makes a league with him. Abner is not sincere, but nonetheless David makes a league with him. And then Joab comes home and you read from chapter 3, Joab murders Abner in a most brutal way. As a matter of fact, Joab and his brother Abishai murder Abner out of revenge for killing their baby brother. Today, we begin chapter 4. That's when chapter 4 begins, and we're going to read about two other brothers who were murderous as well. There's a lot of brothers in 2 Samuel. And so let's look and see. And when Saul's son, that's Ishbosheth, when Saul's son heard that Abner was dead in Hebron. His hands were feeble, and all the Israelites were troubled. And Saul's son had two men that were captains of bands. The name of the one was Bahanah, and the name of the other was Rechab. The sons of Ramon, a Berethite, of the children of Benjamin, for Benjamin, or for Berioth, was also reckoned to Benjamin. And the Berephites fled to Gittaim and were sojourners there until this day. Verse 4, And Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son that was lame of his feet. He was five years old when the tidings came of Saul and Jonathan out of Jezreel. And his nurse picked him up and fled. And it came to pass she made haste to flee, as she made haste to flee, that he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. And the sons of Ramon, back to these two brothers, the Berethite, Rechab and Behanah, Bahanah. They went and came about the heat of the day to the house of Ishbosheth, who lay on his bed at noon. And they came in into the midst of the house as though they would have fetched wheat. And they smote him under the fifth rib 
and Rechab and Behanah, his brother, escaped. For when they came into the house, he lay on his bed, in his bedchamber, and they smote him and slew him and beheaded him and took his head and got them away through the plain all night. And they brought the head of Ishbosheth unto David to Hebron and said to the king, Behold the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life, and the Lord, that's Jehovah, that's the name Jehovah, and Jehovah hath avenged my Lord the king this day of Saul and of his seed. And David answered Rechab and Bahanah, his brother, the sons of Ramon the Berethite, and said unto them, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my soul out of all adversity, when one told me, saying, Behold, Saul is dead, thinking to have brought good tidings, I took hold of him and slew him in Ziklag. Who thought that I would have given him a reward for his tidings? How much more when wicked men have slain a righteous person in his own house upon his bed? Shall I not therefore require his blood of your hand and take you away from the earth? And David commanded his young men and they slew them and cut off their hands and their feet and hang them over the pool in Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the sepulcher of Abner in Hebron. Woo! I'm thankful for children's church. Amen. Isn't that something? Have you ever read anything like that? Do you know now why we begin asking the question, why is this here? What do we learn about God from this? Well, I want to share with you, we do learn an awful lot. One thing we learn is, is we learn about humanity. We really do. One of the old commentators, I can't remember who, and this is not a direct quote, but one of the old commentators said, 2 Samuel chapter 4 does not show us the best of this world, but it shows us the reality of this world. And in reality, it is this world. Let me ask you something. What dominated the news for the last month? The Murdoch murders. My own family on Tracy's side. <laughs> <laughs> has suffered greatly at the hands of a vicious murderer. I've, I, I do a lot of funerals. You know, I've, done, I've buried two people who were murderers in my men, who were murdered in my ministry. Murdered. This is not something that is so strange. This is reality. Don't you remember the summer of love when innocent people, business owners, police officers were murdered and nothing's done? Look at the fentanyl. We're letting the cartels send the fentanyl over here, murdering our young people. It's murder. It's brutal. 
It's terrible. You know what? It's the same as it was then. This is the real world. And so it shows us about humanity. But it also shows us much about God. I'm going to show you two attributes of God in this. Two attributes. And then I'm going to show you the cross. The cross is all over this chapter. This chapter paints an accurate picture of the cross of Christ. But before I do, I want to explain something to you about these two men, these two brothers, the sons of Ramon, Rechab and Bahana. Apparently, you might have noticed that their names are mentioned several times in the text, always together. And uh, the first time they are... Uh, Bahana and Rechab, and then the second time it's Rechab and Bahana. Some uh, Hebrew scholars will tell you that means that uh, Bahana was the oldest, but Rechab, Rechab was the instigator. He's the one who was the mischievous one who led out in this terrible disaster. Well, I don't know about that. I just thought it was interesting and, uh, to, and thought you might find it interesting. But I want to give you four things about these men real quick. And we learn a little bit about humanity. First of all, I want you to see they were deadly men. You say, well, preacher, we could have figured that out by ourselves. You don't need to put that on the screen. We know they were deadly men because of what they did to Ishbosheth. But I want to share something with you. Uh, they were murderers and they were deadly men before this horrendous act of murder most foul against Ishbosheth. In the first few verses of this text, we are told that uh, of their geography, where they lived. First of all, we're told they were Benjamites. They were of the same tribe as King Saul, and hence the same tribe as King Saul's son, Ishbosheth, so they murdered somebody from their own tribe. That makes it more foul, this murder. It wasn't somebody from Judah, where David was from. It was another Benjamite. But then the Bible tells us that they lived in the city of Beeroth. And that's very important. And then it tells us that the Berothites had fled to a city called Gitaim. Did you read that with me? Why in the world will we need to know where they were from? Well, that's because God is painting a picture for us of their character and He's teaching us a valuable lesson about the conscience. You see... Beeroth was an ancient city of the Canaanites. In particular, a group of people of Canaan called Gibeonites. They were Gibeonites who lived in Beeroth. They weren't Jews. In Joshua chapter 9, when Israel was claiming the land that God had promised them, they had won a victory in Jericho. They had lost and then won a victory in Ai. Word got out that Israel was on the march, that the Lord God Jehovah of Israel was giving them the land that had been promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so the Gibeonites decided we have to do something about that or we will be destroyed. So they took some representatives 
and they got old clothes and they got moldy, stale bread and they got old, wore-out shoes. They threw dirt all over those men. They got their beards all scraggly. They put them on camels and gave them broken, empty wineskins and they sent them to Joshua who was just three miles, or I'm sorry, 15 miles up the road, three days' journey. And when the Gibeonites got to Joshua, they said, we've heard what your God is doing. We heard that Jehovah has given you this whole land, and we know that, and we want to sue for peace. We want to be peaceful people. And the Bible says Joshua did not pray about that. Now, that's another sermon And when we're in Joshua, we'll preach on that. But he didn't pray about it, and he made a covenant. He made a league with the Gibeonites. And then they started on their journey, and they got three days' journey, and they saw the Gibeonite city of Beroth. And they knew that those men had lied to them and deceived them. And Joshua said, we have made a covenant with them. We cannot destroy them because we said we would spare their lives. And we have made a covenant. We will not go back on our word. Isn't that a strange thing that a nation keeps its word? And so what they did was, according to Joshua's 9, is they made the Gibeonites servants to Israel. They made them hewers of wood and drawers of water, the Bible says. That's the Gibeonites. Fast forward 350 to 400 years later. 2 Samuel 24, we will see when we get there. At some time during Saul's reign, he decided it was expedient to go after the Gibeonites in his land. And he decided he was going to wipe them out. He was going to violate the covenant that Joshua had made with them and he was going to wipe them out. And God, in David's day, during his reign, is going to judge them for it. But so Saul is wiping them out. It's genocide in his own country, violating this covenant. Isn't it interesting that a man who comes from a nation that was enslaved by the Egyptians because Pharaoh felt they were a threat, would do the same thing to somebody else. Saul starts wiping them out. And he has his army going at it. And apparently these two brothers, Bahana and Rechab, are low-level officers in these raiding bands. And they come to Beeroth to attack it and obey the orders of Saul, their king, and wipe out the Gibeonites in that city. And the Gibeonites flee to an area called Gitaim, which is in the west. It's in the west. And uh, toward Gath, toward the Philistines. So they're in no man's land, even to the day of the writing of 2 Samuel, because of Saul's attack. And these two men and their families and their followers and their soldiers, their families, they inhabit the city of Beeroth, the Gibeonite city. Now, he tells us all that. The Holy Spirit tells us all that to show us a lesson about our conscience. These men were killers before they murdered 
Ishbosheth. They were violent men killing innocent people under the orders of a godless king, Saul. They had no problem, no qualms with going into an innocent man's bedroom, stabbing him and cutting off his head. They didn't think anything of it because their conscience had already been seared as with a hot iron from back when they were slaying the Gibeonites who were innocent. You see, you don't get to something this terrible and awful in your life all at once. You grow into it by one sin, one sin, habitual sin, habitual sin becomes your character, and now you're murdering innocent men in their bedroom. We talk about often how people have fallen so far. When a minister of the gospel falls into adultery or sexual sin, the first thing people say is, is man, he fell so far. But the problem is you don't know how low he had been living because it can be covered up. See, a marriage doesn't just break up all of a sudden. There's some low living before it gets there. A person just doesn't drop out of church all at once one Sunday. There's some low living that gets them there. You see? And that's one lesson we learn from these deadly men. You better nip the baby sins in the bud, folks, because they're going to grow and get more and more vicious. That's what happened to these men. That's why we're told the geography of these men. They were killers, 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 and killers to the 10th power by the time it was over with. It just starts out small and gets bigger and bigger, and it's all sin. Another thing about these men is they were deceptive. You notice that when, when they heard that Abner was dead... The Bible says that uh, um, Ishbosheth's hands were weak. That is a, probably a personal description. He was, he was a weak man to begin with and, and didn't have a lot of personal strength. He cowered down before Abner, and now his Abner, his only fighting general, is, is dead, and he, he, he knows it's over with. But it's also, his hands were weak is also a military term. And it indicates the inability to yield a sword. And so what God is telling us in verse 1, when it says Ishbosheth's hands were weak, is that the military had fallen apart. Let me just put it this way. They had run out of ammunition. It was done. And the Bible also says in verse 1 that all Israel was troubled they were shaken. They didn't know what was going to happen. Is David going to launch an attack now and punish us? What is going to happen to us? And Israel was troubled. And so these two men, Bahanah and Rechab, decided to take matters into their own hand, and they are deadly already, and they go to Mahanaim, to the king's home, and... They are going there to kill him. But they make out like they're going to get wheat. Did you read that? So they, they knew even within their own army, they knew even within their own people that this was not right, the right thing to do. So they get into the house. 
What's interesting is, is the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the uh, Greek translation of the Old Testament that was translated um, uh, centuries later. It has a footnote that says that the woman who kept the, the granary and, and, and kept the place was taking a nap and had inadvertently left the door open. And that's how they were to get in so easily. I don't know about that, but I do know they were deceptive. And they went in to get wheat, acting like they were going to get wheat is how you, can, you paid your soldiers sometimes. And so they were going into the paymaster, if you will. But they made a detour and they went into Ishbosheth's bedchamber. So they were deceitful men. And they were also deliberate men. You saw what they did. They stabbed him under the fifth rib. That is uh, a Hebraism for a, a fatal blow. And it's awful what they did. Now, I don't want to get too graphic about this, so I'll just, I'll just tell you this way. The, the text and the language, the Hebrew language, reads plural, multiple. This was not get him and you're done. This was brutality upon brutality. It was deliberately brutal. The plural, they stabbed and they stabbed again and they stabbed again and they stabbed again and again and again. And then we see that they are determined. They cut off his head. We read that. And they carried his head and traveled all night. The Bible says through the plain, it is the Arabah, which is the plain of Jordan, the Arabah. Now let me give you just one word to tell you what the Arabah is like. Arizona. Okay? Arizona. Nevada. They're just going through the desert. It's dry and arid. And they hasten and they don't stop. What kind of person takes a bloody head after such a bloody act carries it 60-some-odd miles through the Arabah. Now, folks, they're not in an enterprise minivan. They're, 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 they're on camels, perhaps, uh, and they go all night long. They, they haste to get there. And, and ever how long it took them, but they did not stop. They didn't stop. And they marched right in to David. Now that is deadly, deceptive, deliberate, and determined men. Doesn't that sound like such in our culture today? The rampage that wicked people are on in our nation today. Deadly, deceptive, deliberate, and determined. But these two men come to King David. And there are two attributes of God we learn from this text. The first one is from David's reception of them. And we learn that God is just. That God is just. I won't read the text again. I've already read it to you. But here we see four responses to David. 
four truths about David's response that manifest to us just how just God is. He's just. The first one being, God keeps his word. He's just, and it is manifested in the fact that he keeps his word. You will notice that several times in this chapter, the Holy Spirit chose to say Saul's son, Saul's son, Saul's son. It told us about Saul's son, Ishbosheth, Saul's son, Jonathan, Saul's grandson, Mephibosheth, and it told us about Saul's sons, and it even mentions Saul's seed. Well, why does the Holy Spirit do that? Because he's trying to show us a characteristic of David, which is an attribute of God in his justice, that he keeps his word. When those guys brought the head of Ishbosheth into David, they made a terrible blunder because David had given a promise to Saul. In 1 Samuel chapter 24, I'll tell you an event that happened. David is a fugitive. He's on the run. He approaches the camp of Saul one night. He goes into the camp of Saul and he takes a few things and, he, he, and, and, and Abishai says, let's kill him. And David says, nope, I will not kill him. I will not raise my hand against God's anointed. And he leaves the camp and he goes up. I can just picture him going up to the top of the hill. And he gets on top of the hill and the next morning everybody wakes up and Abner's going like this and Saul's stretching and David says, hey, Saul. And Saul says, who are you? You know who I am. And Saul says, my son David. He said, that's right. I could have killed you last night. Why are you treating me like a rabid dog chasing me down? I am no harm to you. I am no threat to you. I have served you. I have submitted to you. I will not resist God's anointed. And then Saul says, You are a better man than me. You are more righteous than me. Who has the opportunity to kill their enemy and does not do it? I certainly would, but not you. You are a righteous man, David. And then Saul says something remarkable. He says, I know that you will be king over all Israel. Swear to me today, David, when you were king, that you will not destroy my seed after me. You will not kill my children and my family when you become king, which was the custom of the day from one king to another. And David looks down and says, I swear I will not. These guys violated the word of God and you don't get to do that and get away with it. David had promised he wouldn't kill Saul's family. And by the way, that means Ishbosheth would have lived. The poor guy had already signaled surrender. Do you remember last week when, when he gave Michael back, his sister, back to David as his wife? He had already signaled surrender. I imagine old Ishbosheth thought he was at peace because he was asleep. He was peace. 
And so David kept his word. God keeps his word. Let me tell you something. If God keeps his, if David kept his word to a man like Saul, his enemy, then he'd keep his word to his followers. If God keeps his word to sinners, don't you know he'll keep it to those who have been redeemed? Another aspect of the justice of God is this. God sees through hypocrisy. God sees through hypocrisy. You, you don't get to hide anything from God. You, you, you don't get to smooth talk God. You, you might, you might smooth talk your way out of a ticket from a Mississippi State trooper. You might smooth your way by getting away with a hunting trip or something. Your wife lets you go. Or your husband lets you go. But you're not going to smooth talk your way before God. Notice in verse 8, they brought that head to Ishbosheth, and they said to David, Behold the head of Ishbosheth. And it's almost as if they had prepared a speech and their logic was just right in line. Here it is. The head of Ishbosheth, David. He's your enemy. Saul was your enemy. His daddy sought to kill you. Here's his son's head. We brought it to you. They sought your life, David. They wanted to kill you, but we killed him. And then they said it. The Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Jehovah has given you your enemies. They're dead. And God has used us to do it. I wonder if they had this attitude. We remember... When you brought Goli when you cut off Goliath's head, now we've cut off your enemy's head, and here he is. How awful that was. But David saw right through it. Now, friend, I, I use the term hypocrisy. Let me give you just a little bit of, of biblical truth about hypocrisy. First of all, no, no, not one single born-again, saved, blood-bought, indwelt by the Holy Spirit Christian can be a hypocrite. They can be hypocritical, right? But they aren't a hypocrite. Say, so where'd you get that? From the Bible. You read the New Testament. Every time Jesus spoke of someone being a hypocrite, they were not saved, they were lost. Peter was hypocritical, but he wasn't a hypocrite. Judas was a hypocrite, and he sure did act fine, but in the end he wasn't fine. Peter was hypocritical, but in the end he was fine. You see? These men were hypocrites. A hypocrite is somebody who claims to be something they're not, right? A hypocrite is somebody who claims to 
be something and does the opposite. Their deeds reflect the opposite as a habitual part of life. So I think we need to be concerned today from this text more with what a hypocrite does rather than trying to define what a hypocrite. Let me share with you one thing from this text that a hypocrite does. Are you ready? They use the name of the Lord as a technique to please others. Let me say that again. A hypocrite will use the name of the Lord as a technique to please others. They chopped off Ishbosheth's head. <laughs> Rode all night nonstop into the next day, no doubt, to David and held up a bloody burlap bag with Ishbosheth's head in it. And they said, David, the Lord God Jehovah has brought you this. They made their evil deed a dirty, bloody head like a filthy rag, Isaiah says, and they couched it and defended it and justified it in the name of the Lord. Let's take warning, dear friend. We don't want to serve the Lord and say it's serving the Lord when it's really serving ourselves. Did you know a preacher can preach a sermon in the name of the Lord and it be just to please others. You can be here today in the name of the Lord and reality is just to please others. And you know what? It does please others. It really does. Let me share with you who it pleases. No doubt... When they got there and brought this bloody head to David, no doubt if these two guys weren't there, present in the room, they certainly heard about it and were happy. Joab and Abishai, the ones who murdered Abner when Abner sued for peace, no doubt they were happy because that's what those two rascals did. No doubt they were happy because they certainly believed that Saul's family should be wiped out. I mean, Abishai was the one who was with David when David, and, and Abishai said, Let me take my spear, I'll smite him to the ground, and he won't get up. And David said, No, we're not going to do that. And those two men were happy. But the one who mattered, the king, wasn't happy with them. See, you can do and I can do all kinds of things and couch it in the name of the Lord and it really not be for the Lord. That's hypocrisy. But a man who hears the name of the Lord does not take it in vain as such, but he humbles himself, admits his rebellion. There's another characteristic of God in terms of His justice, and that is God does not change. David looked at him and said, As the Lord lives, who's redeemed my life at every turn, I didn't need you to do this. God has placed me as king. 
You've overstepped your boundaries. Bad. God is my redeemer. You're not my savior. You're not the end all here, boys. God is my redeemer. And he looked back seven and a half years ago, recorded in 2 Samuel 1, where that Amalekite came and told David, Saul's dead. Well, how do you know Saul's dead? Well, I killed him. Remember that? And David brings that up again and says, the last time somebody came to me and said they had slain God's anointed, thinking that I would reward them for the deed, he said, I killed him. I took him out. I judged him for slaying God's anointed. It was an unjust murder. And of course, the guy lied. Remember that? And now David looks at these two men and says, how much more? Seven and a half years later, do you think I'm fickle? Do you think I changed? Do you think I've softened up because there was a civil war? I am a king who does not change in terms of my justice. And he says, how much more when wicked men will go into a man's bedroom when he's asleep and kill an innocent man? He was innocent because he had already agreed to surrender. He was innocent because the war was over. It was done. No more ammunition. It was over. And have slain him in his bed and cut off his head? How much more do you think I'm going to do for wicked men? And he looked at his young men and snapped his fingers and they killed Bahanah and Rechab right there on the spot. See, God does not change. David had the same justice as he did seven and a half years prior to this. And then in verse 11, we see another thing about the justice of God. He will judge sin. He will punish sin. You will answer to him, and I will answer to him. He commanded the young men, they slew him. They slew him. They did not get away. The wages of sin is death, and they paid the price. So, you say, preacher, don't leave us hanging on that. We want to go enjoy lunch. And all you've given us is blood and a severed head. But you did say there were two attributes of God in this text. We now know about his justice. What's the second attribute? Do you want to know? God is gracious. God is gracious. Where is the grace in this? I'm glad you asked. I'm about to tell you. Now, folks, listen to me. I want you to get something. You don't have this side of God being just and this side of God being gracious. You have God. And he is just and he is gracious among many other attributes. But he is just and he is gracious. Where is his grace? We've seen his justice. Where is his grace? It's all the way back in verse 4. And Jonathan had a son. Saul's son had a son that was lame of his feet. This is Mephibosheth. That's his name. That's a unique name, isn't it? Remember that name. We're going to see it pop up two more times in 2 Samuel. 
And both times, all three times, it is a signal of the grace of God. Mephibosheth was five years old. Saul's grandson was five years old when word came seven and a half years prior to this event. He was five years old, and he heard that his grandfather and father were dead. No doubt he also heard that David was going to make ransack, was going to ransack the whole nation. That he was going to come on and he was going to destroy everybody for the rebellion, which was wrong. So his nurse picked him up, five-year-old boy, and took off running. They fled. And somehow, either she fell with him or she dropped him or something happened. We don't know what happened, but the young man took a fall, the child took a fall, and was disabled in his feet, received an injury. Maybe his legs were broken, they didn't heal right, we, we don't know. But we do know he was disabled and he could not walk. And now he's 12 years old or so. We do know that he's hiding out in the city of Lodabar. Because in 2 Samuel chapter 9, David, after all is settled, and he's king of all Israel, David does something remarkable. I want you to go home today. You got, you got homework today. Go home, and I want you to read 2 Samuel 9. It is one of the most beautiful and wonderful pictures of the Lord Jesus Christ in all of the Old Testament. It's one of my favorite chapters in all of the Old Testament. David is on the throne, and he's secure, and he says, Is there anybody left? of the house of Saul that I may show kindness to them. And somebody says, yeah. Jonathan, your friend, has a son named Mephibosheth. Well, go get him. Mephibosheth, you are invited to my table. I will treat you as my royal family. But, but King David, I... I'm of the rebellious house. I'm Saul's grandson, but I keep my word, Mephibosheth. I am gracious, Mephibosheth. You have a home here, and as long as you live, you will be safe at the king's table. Boy, doesn't that sound like the grace of God to you? Aren't you glad when you respond to the king? We couldn't get there ourselves. We had to have some help because of our sin. We're disabled by our sin. But we get to the king, and he says, Welcome to my table, and as long as eternity lasts, you're safe with me. Amen. Amen. I can't wait till 2 Samuel 9. On one hand, this is a political statement in verse 4 showing us there is nobody who can take Ishbosheth's place. It's done. But on the other hand, it shows us the grace of God. God is gracious. Why is he gracious? Because he's gracious for the same reason he is just. He keeps his word. He sees through hypocrisy. He does not change. And his sin, and sin must be answered for. Well, preacher, where is the sin answered for in all this? Where is the cross? Well, skip down to verse 12. What did he do? He took the bodies of Bahana and Rechab, and he cut off the hands and the feet. Is that what he did? Cut off the hands and feet. He took the head of Ishbosheth and gave it 
as best he could, gave Ishbosheth the state funeral by burying him in the tomb where Abner was. Did the best he could. But he took the hands and the feet of Bahanah and Rechab and nailed it to the wall at the watering pool in Hebron. Take those hands and those feet and nail them to the wall. Where? Where everybody comes to get water. King. The women go there in the morning and then they go there in the evening to get water. And these old bloody hands and bloody feet, they're going to be there for them to see. I want them nailed to the wall at the watering hole. Put them there. Yes, sir. And every day when people came to get water, you know what they saw? Those hands and those feet. Passers-by coming into Hebron, Bedouins and travelers passing through. What would they see when they stopped to water their caravans? They would see bloody hands and bloody feet on the wall at Hebron. What was David saying? David was saying, I am just. You don't violate my word. You don't commit murder in this kingdom and get away with it. Look at these bloody hands and these bloody feet. And then he was also saying, I am gracious to the house of Saul. All Israel will see, I did not want Ishbosheth to perish. I am not willing that any man perish, but all come to repentance. That's what those bloody hands and bloody feet. I think while these hands and feet were on the wall, I think of that text of Scripture in Proverbs chapter 6. Listen to this. Proverbs chapter 6. He says, These six things are an abomination, yea, seven the Lord hates. Seven are an abomination to him. Listen to these things. He hates a proud look, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. Solomon penned these words, no doubt thinking about when his daddy cut off those hands of these two brothers. And then he says, I hate also a heart that devise wicked imaginations and feet that be swift in running to mischief. I hate those kind of hands and those kind of feet because I am just. That's why they're on the wall. But they're on the wall also because I am gracious. Now I want you to look at verse 5 or chapter 5. Chapter 5 says, Then came all the tribes of Israel, including the tribe of Benjamin, including Saul's tribe. And they said, Behold, we are bone of thy bone. When they walked past that pool, they saw those bloody hands. And they said, those are the hands of Bahanan Rechab. They murdered Ishbosheth, and King David has inflicted his justice upon them. He did not want Ishbosheth to die. He will receive us. How do you know? Look at those hands and feet. We didn't murder anybody. We came to surrender to the king. So let's leave the pool of Hebron for a little bit, and let's go... Fast forward to another event in history. Not to a watering hole, 
but to a hill outside Jerusalem. And there was a man on the middle cross and his hands are bloody because there's nails in his hands. Do you see the cross? His feet are bloody because there's nails pierced through his feet. Do you see the cross? They are bloody because God hates sin and he judges sin. He who knew no sin became sin for us and his hands and his feet are bloody because of it. So we see his justice on the cross. But now, wait, wait, preacher, you said there's two here in chapter 4. What about his grace? His hands are bloody on the cross. Do you see his grace? He became sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That's grace. He became sin for us. Bahana and Rechab, they, they, they were their own sinners. They died for their own sin. But Jesus died for my sin and yours. And when God laid on me, my, on him, my sin and my iniquity, his hands were bloodied. And I say, well, God, I, I need your forgiveness. I, I need to be saved. I need to come to you and make you bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, like they said in chapter 5. And he says, it's done. The blood of justice is also the blood of grace because I judge sin, and sin cannot be unjudged. If, if I were just to pass it over and say, no cross, no damnation, no hell... I wouldn't be God. I wouldn't be just. I couldn't be gracious if I couldn't be just. And I will not be just without my graciousness. And so he has Jesus on the cross, hands nailed to the cross. And passers-by see it, and they say, look you there, God hates sin. God hates sin. Well, how do you know he hates sin? Well, look at those bloody hands and bloody feet. They, 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 they were the ones that bore my iniquity. My sin was laid upon him, and God hates sin. He has nailed him to a cross, and there's bloody hands and bloody feet nailed up for everybody to see. And then you walk by. I hope you can walk by and say, look at there. Look at those bloody hands and bloody feet. God is gracious. He's gracious. Well, how do you know he's gracious? Those are ugly hands and ugly feet. Oh, yeah, because they bore sin. Well, how do you know he's gracious? Because it's his hands and his feet, not mine. Because it's my sin that bloodied his hands and bloodied his feet. Our God is just and gracious. Isn't that a wonderful Savior we have? He can take an ugly, ugly chapter from the Old Testament and turning it into some beauty at the cross. Amen. That's our God. That's our Savior. Blessed be God and Savior of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessing. I hope you know Him as your Savior. Bahanah and Rechab died for their own sin. Only if they had 
come to David and said, David, we obeyed orders and we, we committed genocide. We should die, but be gracious to us. He would be gracious. Ishbosheth was receiving the grace of God. Abner was receiving the grace of God. But they didn't come to him that way. They came with an old bloody head talking about the name of the Lord, someone they knew nothing about. Kind of reminds me of that verse where Jesus says, Father, we've done this in your name. We've done this in your name. We've preached. We've taught. We've done miracles. We've, and Jesus says, depart from me. I know not you. I know not you. Only if they had come in repentance. Like in chapter 5, the Benjamites came, the Israelites came, and they were received by the king. You can be received by the king and receive the grace of God. The grace of God if you would come. Are you 100% certain if you died now, you'd go to heaven? No doubt whatsoever. If not, if not, this is what I want you to do. We're about to stand up. We're going to sing a song. It's called a song of invitation. That's what it is. It's called the invitation in a Baptist church. And if you're not 100% certain if you die today, you'd go to heaven, I want you to just come down the aisle. Balcony, you can come down the balcony. Come down the aisle. Just walk down right here. I'm going to be standing up front waiting on you. I'm waiting for you right here. And you just, I'm going to extend my hand, and you take my hand, and you say, Preacher, I want to be saved. That's what you say. You just tell me those S-A-V-E-D. I want to be saved. And I'm going to tell you what. We'll get you what you need. We'll show you in the scriptures how you can be saved and have 100% assurance. And the justice of God will have been met for you. It won't be in your future. It'll be in your past on an old rugged cross. And the shady green pastures will follow you and you'll have mercy and goodness all the days of your life in the Lord. For the struggles, for the good times, for the bad times, you'll be under the grace of God because of those bloody hands and bloody feet. This is Cole Andrews. Thank you for tuning in to our sermon podcast. I just wanted to encourage you to visit our website, fbcosms.com. 